Let's pray. Father, that song captures our heart, for we do love you. But what's more important, Lord, you first loved us. And so we respond to your love. And we are a blessed people because you have chosen us, you have loved us, and Lord, we want to return that love. And we want to look at your word, and we want to study to show ourselves approved here this morning, Lord. So be with us as we look at your word, and may each and every one of us find application in your word for our lives. And let us be doers of your word, Lord, not hearers only, in deceiving ourselves. But we want to apply your word. We want it to be part of our lives. For it is truth, and we need truth. And we thank and praise you in Jesus' name. You may be seated. This morning we're in Revelation chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 13. We've almost made it through the Bible. Revelation. I went to my dentist back in May, and he says, Preacher, where are you preaching from? I said, Ah, we're just starting Revelation. He said, Ah, you're a brave man. You're promised a blessing if you study Revelation. I don't know. So we study it all. From table of contents to maps, man, we get it all. So, But we're looking this morning at three of the angels that appear in chapter 14. Angels. Messengers of God. Angels are always male. You don't see any reference to in Scripture to an angel being a female. Sorry, gals, not my doing. And we have good angels. We have archangels like Michael and Gabriel. And Satan was an archangel before his fall. And demons are simply fallen angels. When Satan sinned and when he fell, he took one-third of the host of heaven with him. These fallen angels are commonly referred to as Satan's host or demons. And these demons, although they followed Satan, they are still under the authority of Jesus Christ. All of creation is under the authority of Jesus, including Satan. And many times when Jesus walked on the earth in in his ministry, he would order demons to come out of a person, and then he would tell the demons, be silenced, be quiet, you're not allowed to speak, and they had to hold their tongues. And we hear and we read of the healing and the salvation of the Gadarene demoniac. And he was possessed with a legion of demons. And that's recorded in Luke 6, or Luke 8, rather, verse 26 through 33. You may want to turn there. I'm going to read it. Um, It's interesting because we want to look at the authority that Jesus had over the demons here. 
Luke 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out onto the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes. So that's where you could recognize him. No, he wore no clothes. <laughs> Nor did he live in a house but in tombs. When Jesus saw him, he cried out, and he fell down before Jesus, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded, Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by demons into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go to the abyss. Now a herd of many swine were feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. This is a very interesting story, of course, but in the thing we want to look at is the authority that Jesus had over demons and over the evil kingdom. Verse 29, we have Jesus commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Jesus didn't say, if you want to or if you uh, see fit. He said, come out. And he had to come out. Verse 30, Jesus asks, what is your name? And the man says, legion. That's quite a reply, by the way. A legion could be as many as 5,000 men. Verse 31, these demons beg Jesus, don't command us to go into the abyss. So they're asking mercy from Jesus not to be cast into the abyss, which goes into the bottomless pit. They're begging Jesus, permit us to enter a herd of pigs. Jesus allows this, and the demons enter the pigs. Now, it's interesting, and I, I feel we should at least mention this, animals, much less human beings, cannot be demon-possessed without Jesus' permission. That's... There's some theology or demonology, you might say, involved there. So how does a person become demon-possessed? By an act of their free will, they invite Satan or his demons into their life. That's how you enter. Just like a person becomes a Christian, we invite Jesus into our life. Jesus honors man's free will. In verse 33, the demons enter the pigs and they run violently down the steep place and they drown in the sea. The authority of Jesus over Satan and his demons, well, it's a comfort to any Christian. Our Lord is in a position of authority. He has never surrendered that authority 
to Satan or this world. And in chapter 14 of Revelation, John encounters angels, messengers of God, who have a message and who have a purpose. So let's read today's text. Let's read Revelation chapter 14, 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and faith of Jesus. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from the labors and their works follow them. Verse 6 and 7 we looked at last week, but this verse 6 and 7 is what we would call evangelistic angel. This angel, he does not attempt to disguise himself. He does not attempt to take on characteristics of man. He doesn't necessarily want to appear as a man. And John doesn't see some caped crusader flying through the heaven. John sees an angel. Angels can be awesome in appearance. John on several occasions falls down before an angel in the book of Revelation, and he falls down to worship. And the angel, time and again, they promptly tell him, do not do that. Why are you worshiping us? But the appearance of this angel or angels to John totally inspires him to worship. They're so mighty compared to him. We have an angel in chapter 10, verse 5. He has one foot on the sea, and he has another foot on the land. That is a big angel. And then we have tribulation angels, and most of them make no attempt to soften their appearance. They're angels, and they want you to know they're angels. And they make no bones about being angels angels. These are not angels that you and I entertain unaware. 
you know that verse. Yeah, don't you know that you entertain angels on a word? No, no. These are angels, and they want you to know they're angels. Verse 8, we have another angel following the appearance of the first. And this angel cries out, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. We will look further at the fall of Babylon in chapter 17, but Babylon in Scripture has a twofold image. Babylon can refer to an organized political system of man in rebellion against God. Some scholars say it refers to Rome. That would indicate that a religious system will arise out of Rome leading all nations into spiritual fornication. That is where, why some say the Catholic Church could be at the core of idolatry, perhaps, perhaps the power brace of the Antichrist. I don't know if I buy into that, but it's at least worth looking at. The other Babylon is simply a great city in Iraq yet to be destroyed. The ancient Babylon of Iraq is where the beginnings of demonic worship started. Black magic, the black arts, all originated in Babylon. And so we have Babylon. You can take your choice of which uh, description you want your Babylon to be. It could actually be both. In verses 9 through 13, a third angel, and this angel has a severe warning. And in a loud voice, he captures John's attention. During the tribulation time, during the tribulation period, Everything becomes cut and dried. Everything is, becomes black and white. Everything is really evil against good, and there's no disguising that evil. This angel, he declares, if you worship the beast by receiving his identification mark, some form of 666, or the equivalent of 666, whether it's a barcode or a tattoo or a chip under the skin, however this mark is introduced, if you take and receive this mark, you will suffer the consequences of Satan and his host, his demons. There will be no accidental receiving of the mark of the beast. God has made sure of that. He sends an angel with a loud voice, warn mankind not to take this mark. People will know who they worship and who they align themselves with in the tribulation time. It won't be a mystery. This loud third angel has a purpose. And it's his duty to warn mankind that is still alive on earth that the damnation of their soul hinges upon them receiving that mark or not receiving that mark. Do not take the mark. God couldn't be more clear. He couldn't be more plain. Do not 
receive the mark. For those who receive the mark shall also drink the wine of God's wrath, being poured out in full strength. That's an interesting term, by the way. God's wrath, God's cup of wrath. It's used time and again in Scripture. Jesus spoke of it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he said, Lord, if it be your will, I want to avoid the cup of wrath, or I want to avoid the cross. If you can save man any other way than me going to the cross, Father, do it. But then Jesus declares, nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus knew what the cross entailed. He knew what he was about to suffer. And this tribulation that will come upon the world is a time where God's wrath is poured out. Now, there is a Greek word called thymos, and it's used about ten times in the book of Revelation. And thymos is simply a predetermined, thought-out opposition by God towards rebellious, sinful mankind. But thymos is not used here in this passage. We have here a passionate anger by God against Satan and his demons, and it's not just a thought-out opposition to Satan. And it's also a passionate anger by God against those who align themselves with Satan. God will show his wrath. He tells man, I'm going to do it. Their torment, their punishment will be to suffer fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb of God. Wow. Verse 11 and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. In the presence of the Lamb. God's presence will be in hell as he sees man, Satan, and his demons tormented. There is suffering right there before him. God is everywhere, but God's love is not everywhere. And what's absent there, totally absent, in the fire and the brimstone is the love of God. Now, we don't know God in that way. We've never experienced God in that way. We serve God, a God of love, in the age of grace, our dispensation of grace. We see God in his love. But there is this side to God that when he pours out wrath and judgment that we never want to see. And I'm glad we don't have to see that. But those, what would make somebody take this mark of the beast, though? Why would anyone in their right mind take the mark of the beast when an angel is saying, don't do it, you're going to suffer damnation? Well, because you're going to need the mark of the beast to buy and sell, to eat, to exist here on earth. The cost, however, to receive this mark is eternal damnation. 
And God makes no apology about it. He makes no apology for pouring out his wrath upon those who align themselves against him. He even sends a loud angel to warn man. Do not take the mark. So do I soften this passage in any way? Do I make it more palatable? No, I don't. I won't. I refuse to. This is God's word. This is what he declares. And I want to be faithful to him. I have not always been so firm (laughs) in my declaration of God's word. When I was a young believer, I would try to soften. I would try to make God's judgment appear reasonable. Uh, You know, if I spoke of God's judgment, I said, well, man's got it coming. It's a right, rightful judgment upon man, which it is. But God never called me to justify him. He never called me to do that. God has called me to declare his word. And if his word offends you, then that's a problem between you and God. It's not between me, you, and God. I'm just telling you what it says. I have a prayer that I pray quite often, and that is, Lord, help me to be faithful to speak the truth of your word. I'm not a young man. You noticed. (laughs) No longer do I hold other men in high esteem. I don't hold myself in high esteem. I fear God more than I fear man. And I want to be faithful to declare his word. It's just like this third angel. He's declared in a loud voice. You know, John didn't have to necessarily hear that it was a loud voice, but he took note that it was a loud voice. This angel gets your attention. And the message of the book of Revelation is a hard, truthful message to the whole world. To the entire world. Now here's the good news. Turn to Jesus today. Avoid the time of wrath that is coming upon this sinful world. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It's God's word. It will happen. Again, the good news. I firmly believe the church is raptured before God's wrath is poured out upon this world. That is great news. Call me an escapist. Call me whatever you like. That's all right. I don't want to be here. (laughs) And we have that promise that he will take us home. He will come and get us. That is good news. We're not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed under God's judgment, and I'm so glad that we aren't. Now I want to tell you when the rapture is. Ah. (laughs) Any day, any moment. You thought you had me there, didn't you? (laughs) I'm not Harold Camping, by the way. Um, Back to our study. (laughs) Verse 12, it speaks 
of patience of the saints. And it's talking about tribulation saints here. Um, saints who patiently, daily keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. Who are these saints? I believe there is a great multitude that know the word of God at least well enough to know not to take the mark of the beast. They know it well enough not to align themselves with Satan. And then they turn to God. And they know that it will probably require their life. They'll have to lay down their life. And it's by patience of doing the commands of God and keeping faith in Jesus and it's resting and trusting in the promises of God for the whole world around them is not. Patience and faith, they're like Siamese twins. They go hand in hand. Patience by these saints declares, I will wait for God to provide and to deliver me. That, by the way, is what patience does in our lives. Patience causes us to wait for God's provision. Our God is faithful, and patience says, I will not take matters into my own hands. <laughs> Could have talked all day without saying that. Patience and faith allows God to move on our behalf. Now, as believers, we have gifts of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives us. We have a measure of faith that's given to us, and we have other spiritual gifts. But patience is earned, and it's developed. And it's earned through trials. Very seldom, this is a confession, by the way, very seldom does God answer my prayers exactly in the manner that I pray and ask of them. Very seldom, but he always answers. Nor does God answer in the time frame that I said. You know, Lord, I need an answer by, you know, this time next year. You know, you need to give me what you're talking about here, Lord. But God is never late. God is never late. But God, here's this, write this one down. God always answers prayer. And he answers prayer in one of three ways. You didn't know I knew that, did you? <laughs> he can say yes. He can say no. He never says maybe. He can say not now. God says, he never tells us maybe. He says, yes, no, or not now. That's your three answers to prayer. The maybe we put in there, if I'm a good boy and, you know, say my prayers and don't kick the dog, then maybe God will answer my prayer. No. Yes, no, or not now. Always. That's always. That's comfort to me. But... The little book of James, an exhortive book, James writes about patience. In James 1, 
verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James says, count it all joy when you fall into trials. I've been known to whine or snivel a little bit on a regular basis. God's Word says, count it all joy when trials come upon us, for trials produce patience. And patience brings about perfection. Not that we're without fault, not that we're without blemish, but that we're single-minded towards God and His purposes. That's perfection when you speak about working, walking perfect before the Lord. Is, uh, I am totally dedicated to the Lord. doesn't mean I don't make mistakes or you know, fall short. It means my heart is set perfectly towards the Lord. That's what perfection is. And no trial, when we're going through them, seem good. Yet trials produce patience. And we live, if you haven't noticed, in an impatient world. Do you know anybody that's in debt that has maxed out their credit cards? Could be from a lack of patience, not waiting to buy the whatever, not wanting to save up to buy, but putting it on a credit card where they can have it now, avoiding being patient. We drive through a fast food restaurant like McDonald's. I know, I, I go to McDonald's. And we get perturbed if we wait two minutes for our meal. Impatience. And we will mumble or grumble and say, I thought this was fast food. I heard one of the best descriptions of being impatient. It's, we are a society who stands in front of a microwave and screams, hurry up. <laughs> and how true. <laughs> Jesus in Luke 21.9 declared, In patience possess your souls. Our souls. That inward part of us which never dies. And here in Revelation 14.12, the tribulation saints who come to the Lord and they come to the Lord in an extremely difficult time, are told by this third angel, patiently keep God's commandments and faith in Jesus. Don't waver. Stay steady. And then John hears a voice from heaven telling him, write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then we have a pause. Yes, says the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is confirming what John heard. John hears the saints are blessed because now 
They rest from their labors. And then a peculiar thing is said, and their works follow them. Why is that peculiar? Their works follow them. In Matthew chapter 6, you're familiar with this, I'm sure. We're told to lay up treasures in heaven. Saints of today, you and I, we're to lay up treasures ahead of time in heaven. How do we lay up treasures? Good works. It's that simple. Good works. And good works are treasures that go before us to heaven. Tribulation saints, their good works follow them. Now, that may not appear like a big deal or, or you know, why do I make this a point? We have, saints of today, Christian believers of today, have a beautiful opportunity to store up our good works beforehand in heaven. That moth and rust do not decay or rust away. Don't take away our good works. And it's a blessed privilege to serve the Lord before end times. Our works go before us. We have things blowing around out there. Anyway, the only thing as a believer that goes to heaven before us is our prayers or our works. That's it. So as a believer, it's a no-brainer that we should be about good works. Good works in God's kingdom. I have a prayer, and I pray it quite often, and that is, God, let me be about you and your kingdom today. I want to be about something that's lasting. Amen. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, help us to take inventory. Help us to realize. Help it to sink down into our hearts and souls, Lord the great opportunity we have to be about you and your kingdom before the end time comes. Lord, our good works go before us. We lay up treasures just by giving a cup of cold water or being kind to a child. Let us be about you and your kingdom. So much of our lives is about ourselves and our own desires, Lord, but change our hearts. I want to be about you and your kingdom, Lord. I want to be a man that's led by your spirit. I want to be about you, Lord Jesus. So help us. Help each and every one of us here to be about you in your kingdom that our good works would go before us and be treasures awaiting us. We pray for this, Lord.
And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.